You're listening to episode 158 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Gibran Mohammadi. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Mehrban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have a really fun and insightful interview with Gibran Mohammadi. And Gibran was a former ATP player. He played Davis Cup for Pakistan, and he has practiced and played with many legends of the sport, like Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, the Bryan brothers, uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, a really interesting match with Denis Shapovalov that we talk about. Uh, well, we talk about all of these experiences um, during the episode. And Gibran is currently a tennis coach in Toronto at the Granite Club. Uh, and funny enough, he coaches there with one of my friends and former college teammate, uh, Irfan Shemazdin. Uh, go dogs. Uh, we both played at uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and had a great time there. And yeah, uh, you know, one thing that I love myself when I listen to podcasts are the stories that are included as part of background for uh, making a point or. Uh, you know, approaches to life or anything like that. And so in this particular episode, we go into a lot of uh, different experiences and stories and cool little tidbits that Gibran has had in relation to, um, you know, whether it's his own career or really cool experiences with these great players. And uh, it's certainly a long episode, but it's uh, really enjoyable in my clearly unbiased opinion. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited for you to listen to it. It was a lot of fun to to talk to Gibran. And uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Gibran Mohammadi. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have Gibran Mohammadi on the podcast. And Gibran has played with the greatest players in the world and is uh been on the ATP tour. He's also coaching right now at the Granite Club in Toronto. And uh, he's doing a great job uh, as well on just like spreading the knowledge of tennis on social media. Uh, Gibran, welcome to the podcast. And it's uh, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, man. Uh, keep up the great work. It's awesome to see your stuff online and uh, with this podcast as well. It's awesome, man. So keep it up. Thanks. Appreciate that, Gibran. And yeah, it's pretty cool because I... I I noticed that, you know, you've been getting some shares with a lot of your content and didn't the, uh, was it like either tennis TV or ATP, uh, didn't they share like some trick shots that you, uh, did recently? 
So every once in a while, I just kind of, you know, joke around and uh, have a few trick shots in there and, and get them recorded and I'll put them up there. And uh, surprisingly, one morning I woke up and the ATP tour, uh, you know, Insta page had, uh, had tagged me on one of their uh, posts with uh, my trick shot as one of the boats to, uh, to get it up and running. So it was, I was pretty pumped about that and I was sending it all out to my buddies and my contacts saying like, vote for me, man, vote for me. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was exciting. Obviously it, it was, it was pretty cool to be on there, but uh, we were, it was more just having fun and it was pretty awesome. That's, that's great, man. And what do you, do you remember what, well, you probably do. What, which trick shot was that particular one? So it was interesting. The, the, the very first one, uh, they, there was actually surprisingly two weeks in a row, which I was very surprised. I mean, the first week was basically I, I tossed it around my back and kind of hit it behind my back with a serve. And then, then the next week I posted one up and it was like hitting a serve with the handle of the racket. So they posted that one up too, uh, which wasn't as crazy as the first one. I think the first one was a lot, a lot better, but thanks ATP tour for, uh, for sharing my, uh, my trick shot. So that kind of got me pumped up and I was like, Hey man, I'm going to try to keep doing this just for the hell of it. <laughs> pretty, pretty sweet. And like, is that something that you've kind of toyed with like for a, a long period of time or is it just kind of recent, like spur of the moment type of thing? It was honestly just spur of the moment. And honestly, the cool, the cool thing about this whole Instagram thing is that you see other people doing stuff like trick shot Tuesday and this and that, and you see, and you, and you kind of learn from, you know, how they're kind of making things different and creative and, and then you just kind of jump in and you have some fun. And that's basically how I took it. So it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, it's cool. I'll do it every once in a while. Sweet, sweet, man. So uh, I just want to, you know, I'm always interested to learn about how people got their start in tennis or, you know, what inspired them to, to start. So obviously going to ask you that question now, how were you introduced to the game of tennis? Well, it was interesting. I, uh, I was, I started playing like, you know, soccer, basketball when I was young, just, you know, out in the park and, and my dad would watch me and, and it'd be interesting because, you know, I wouldn't want to pass the ball to anybody. I was a hog, right? So he saw that I was, I was such a hog in other sports and he's like, you know what, let's, let's, let's look at some, uh, individual type of sports for this guy because he doesn't want to share playing with others. But no, I mean, uh, so then he then he gave me a, a a racket and a ball, and he said, "Look, man, here's here's a wall, and this is how you hit against the wall." And he wasn't a tennis player; he just really loved sports in general, and and he loved tennis. He watched tennis a bunch, like growing up. So uh, that's how I started. I started on the wall, and 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 then I, ever since I was hooked, and I started playing tournaments and stuff. So I actually grew up playing tennis in Canada and uh, we used to live in the Niagara Falls area back in the day. And that's where we, uh, we kind of got started playing junior tennis in the local club. And one thing led to another with tournaments and this and that, and, and now we're here still. So. Yeah. Awesome. Man. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've read a book called range, which analyzed Roger Federer's, uh, you know, upbringing, which he practiced with him and, he uh he played a bunch of sports when he was young. So I'm curious to ask you, do you feel like playing other sports actually helped your tennis career, which you obviously reached very high levels? It definitely did. I mean, you know, I, I remember in high school, um, when I got grew up a little more and and, and started understanding that you gotta share the ball and not be a hog. I played a bunch of basketball, a lot of street ball actually, uh just with friends after school and stuff, which uh sometimes would get me injured and in trouble with my dad because, you know, he'd be working hard to get ready for a tournament. And then, you know, I'd, I'd go up for a rebound or I'd 
come down on someone's foot and turn my ankle. Like my ankles were, uh, all my buddies actually make fun of me because I got skinny ankles. So they're like, man, you're always just turning your ankles. Right. So, but, uh, no, I mean, I, uh, it really helped, uh, to play those other games because it, it, it just gives you an ability to understand different types of movements and, and also, uh, learning, learning about the fact that you, you have to use your mind in different ways to, to excel in a certain sport right so it's 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 uh it's definitely a benefit i would definitely like i you know i have my kids playing soccer i got three boys at home so it's a busy household play soccer uh before this whole covid thing and now they're starting to play tennis a little bit more once uh, things have started to open up but it's uh it's definitely something that i would have them focus on in terms of development for sure so yeah definitely having them develop those athletic capabilities when they're young and so forth uh, yeah, that's fantastic stuff, Gibran. And curious too, whenever I interview uh, players who have reached a really high level like you, I'm curious about their training environment, especially when they're young. So when I said for you, like, what, what was the training environment like? And did you like progress from one environment, like, let's say just uh, practicing with, with uh, other players to like an academy or something like that? Or wh- how was your environment like training? <laughs> So the interesting thing was when I first started uh, here in Canada and uh, due to business and whatnot, my my dad was actually working in the States as well. Uh, so we actually moved down to Houston for a bit. So I played uh, junior tennis, you know, on and off here, but not full on. Like I would t- probably take about one lesson a week back then when I was around eight, nine years old. And then back in 95, 96, we actually moved down to the U.S., and uh, that's where I actually started fully developing. And, you know, their, their structure was a little bit different at that time in terms of academies and just more kids to play with in general and having tennis courts uh, full year round because obviously it's much colder here up in Canada. So you really have to find an indoor facility to uh, get the hours up in terms of development. So, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, I used to train at this actually pretty famous club at least for the tennis guys that know Westside Tennis Club uh, down in Houston, Texas. Uh, it was the first tennis club that actually had all four Grand Slam surfaces, which is pretty neat. And they actually hosted the uh, the final eight, you know, the, the ATP Tour tournament for the men's for two years in a row, which I think Fed won both years, I might, I, I'm guessing. One beating, I think, Hewitt in the finals and then one Safin. I might be wrong on one of those. But yeah, no, it was... Uh, Pretty cool, but yeah, that was a great facility to train at. And there was this, uh, there was this uh, academy called King Daddy Sports that was running through that uh, facility. And at that time, there was a bunch of uh, juniors, like they had over 100, 150 juniors that were were going through that program, which kind of fed right into playing junior tennis in terms of tournaments and uh, and lessons. So it was good exposure, and then also you know the exposure in the u.s to be honest and even in up going leading up into high school they have a quite a competitive full year round uh program that's set up where even if between uh the day after school they still have structured stuff that you can do if you're not involved with tennis after school in, in, in an academy which is nice and then they have weekly um or every bi-weekly matches which keeps you going in terms of the competitive aspect if you're playing USTA plus high school matches, which was really cool. But yeah, no, I mean, personally, like we, we couldn't really afford really, really high performance uh, stuff. Like honestly, back then too, I was probably taking one hour a week of privates, but then I was still in, in, involved with uh, doing 
program stuff. So it was more, you know, group stuff and, and get used to the atmosphere and the surroundings around you and just, you know, set up practice matches. To be honest, my real training was really just playing a bunch of tournaments. I remember I'd play like 30 weeks in a row and I didn't care. Like that was my development. I would say I learned a lot from playing matches uh, versus just training because to be honest, we couldn't afford training full on like other kids were able to uh to to, to take like three at three four lessons a week and and then program time but the atmosphere and the and the surrounding was was really really important for my development at least in the u.s for sure because of the kids and the uh the tournaments and and the and the weather obviously so that really helped or else it would have been tougher for sure so here in canada paying yeah, indoor fees yeah. and whatnot right i mean it, it adds up so yeah, for sure. I mean, that's really admirable, you know, that you're able to still plan the tour and all that coming from a not like a super rich type of place. And uh, curious, with you playing so many tournaments, I mean, you were you you were still able to work on your game? Like, because I guess like if you're playing a, a ton of tournaments like that, for some people, like they might not be able to implement like different tactics or whatever, like unless they practice it a lot first. So was that an issue at it for you at all? An interesting thing was like, I would definitely say I was a, a huge late bloomer. I would play all the USTA events and, and every year, you know, whether it was the Texas uh, tournaments in terms of sectionals and they have like this setup where it's champs, super champs, and then, and then it goes into nationals and, and whatnot. But I remember my development in terms of progressing, at least ranking wise and getting more, more in depth with tactics, tactics and strategy. I didn't really learn that until like my later years, like 17, 18 years old, uh, because, you know, number one, if you're in a group environment, you don't really get too much individual attention. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, some feedback here and there from coaches and that one, you know, lesson a week from coach Tom Corson, who is my local coach in Houston. Um, he he would definitely, he was like a certain volleyer. So he would tell me more about certain volley tactics and mm -hmm. And then also for my type of game style, which at that time I was more of a counter counter puncher with a decent serve. So, you know, it was more about staying at the baseline and, and trying to grind it out from the back and uh, trying to develop that game. But I, was, I felt like I was, I was kind of taking bits and pieces because of the co coaching wasn't fully there for me to actually, now you watch kids that are just, you know, they got the fitness, they got the, I would be doing I would be doing fitness to be honest in my house and I'm doing dips on the chair and doing push-ups and so it wasn't really a full-on structured thing for me in terms of once I started getting into university and and that but up until juniors honestly like the last year of 18s I remember I played Kalamazoo I got invited to Kalamazoo so every year 16s second year 16 then first year 18 like my ranking got better and better until I could finally play Kalamazoo which is a huge honor and I got invited to Easter Bowl but unfortunately, we couldn't make that tournament and all those tournaments that are, you know, down south in Florida. But I ended up, and I remember my dad and I, we uh, we drove up to Kalamazoo from Houston. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience. You see all these players like Rajiv Ram, Brian Baker uh, at that time that, that were successful tennis players. And it was a new thing for me, for sure. So because I was a late bloomer, all the exposure to that level was another was was another uh, dimension of play for sure, but uh, it was bits and pieces. And then you know, once I start getting into university, then you get a little more guidance. You get you learn a little more about your physical ability, and you get stronger, you get bigger, you get a little bit smarter. <laughs>
Yeah, and it was uh, it was interesting. So I went to Tyler Junior College basically uh, for a year. They were the top junior college in the country at that time, and uh, so it was uh, it was good. It was good. I mean, it was it, it was a smaller setup in terms of the in terms of education. It was smaller classes, and and tennis wise, they have they had a good program. John mm-hmm. Coach John P. Uh, Peterson, you know, he had a he had a great uh, setup up there in terms of his teams and who he selected. We had a bunch of guys that were from the UK. We had two guys from the UK. We had a guy from France. We had a bunch of international players. So that gave me more exposure as well to get an idea of how Europeans play and, and, uh, and then, and then exposure to playing other teams. Like we played, I remember as a top junior college team, we also played TCU, you know, we played a exhibition match with A&M, like it was fun. So, you know, we actually won nationals that year, which was fantastic. And um, that was an awesome experience. And, and, and then again, I learned so much about my playing ability and, and figured out ways to win. But it was, I could definitely say that the private uh, development was, was lacking in terms of really personal attention. And I felt like I was kind of self-learning and self-taught up until that point. Because even in college and university, you'll get, you know, more psychological backing in terms of on court, you know, because the coaches can talk to you and tell you what to do in terms of before a match or after. At that time, I don't think it was allowed to. I think they've changed it up now where, you know, coaches actually, I might be wrong, can come on to court on the changeovers. Am I wrong there? Or? I, I think they can. I think when I was playing, I, I think they, my coach came on and, and coached me, I think. Yeah. So that type of coaching of what you want to do tactically and, you know, strategically in a match versus a certain guy maybe that you might not have seen play before and, and the, the outside eyes can definitely see some more than what you're trying to battle on the court, which was interesting, but that was a great experience. And, you know, I won the, you know, we were national champs that year and, you know, we were, I was named all American as well as other teammates. Nice. And so that was a really, really cool experience as well leading up to, uh, uh, college tennis. And then I actually just were, I was only able to, to finish off one year because uh, my father ended up getting a little bit ill. And then I had to come back to to Canada because they were living, actually they were, he was back and forth. So they were come. they came back to, once I started uh, college, they, they came back to the U, uh, to Canada to, to live here. And then my dad got a bit sick. So then I had to kind of change route and come back here and kind of uh, start from scratch again in terms of training and and then helping out the family in terms of priorities, I had to kind of rethink my, I wanted to go back to the second year. And unfortunately, there's things didn't work out. And uh, so I had to start kind of developing in Canada. And it was tough because I didn't know anybody here because I was gone for such a long time. Uh, this was probably 2004 was when I got back because uh, the year I played at Tyler was 2003. So yeah, so so then I came back to Canada and then basically started my my training back here with, you know, an on and off kind of situation. It was frustrating time because I wanted to go back, wanted to be with my friends and I wanted to be with the people that I kind of, I wanted to win another title, right? It was awesome. Like we won one and then, you know, coach was telling us to get back and, but it was, it was a tough time, but that's, this is where I kind of grew up. And then we came back and started developing from here and and went forward with uh, trying to figure out how to meet new friends here and trying to build your build your contacts uh, in terms of the training. The, the tough part here was all the top guys that were training, whether they were in university, they were away, or if they're on tour, they were traveling. They were down in, you know, their bases were down in Florida or Europe or so there wasn't really a hub in Canada, so to speak. They would come in and train a little bit for a week or two if they were had a week off and then they would leave again, right? So uh, it was tough definitely to, to, to find 
good players to train with here. It's, uh, you know, this is where I had to kind of stick it out for a little bit. And, but I learned a lot about myself at that time as well, you know, and this is where I started playing uh, tournaments, but then I also had to work because of due to the family circumstances. So I was kind of working slash playing. So it wasn't a full on, like, let's go, you know, play some opens to make some money. Also teach during the week, save up some money and then go back out and try to, you know, that dream of being on tour was always there. You know, that was my, uh, that was my goal. So for many years, I just felt like I was kind of chasing my tail because, you know, I was stuck in terms of uh, trying to provide for the family, but also trying to have that goal and that dream of, hey, you know, I can still do it and still get out there and play some events. So uh, luckily, it was good to um, stick it out and, and, and play here because, you know, I was near family and I wouldn't take that back. Now, at that time, obviously, you can't see further. You're only looking at that time. But now I look back and I said, you know, I, I look at it and I say the, the, the development and the mental strength that I built up from that from those tough times in terms of training in tough circumstances. And uh, it, it really definitely made me uh, a better player, but also a better person, I guess. So, um, yeah, you, again, and I'll, I'll tell my my students on court, too, you know, it's tennis is it's such a beautiful sport, but. You learn a lot about yourself that'll help you off the court as well as on the court, which is important, right? I mean, you learn a lot about yourself and things that you can, because of tennis, I know if I put my mind to something else that I want to get better at, I know I can do that because the, the challenges that we that I saw in tennis in terms of the training and, and sticking it out and, and grinding through and, and really, I call it suffering, right? You know, suffering mm -hmm. for your goals and uh, trying to uh, move forward, even through tough circumstances, I think makes you and molds you um, into a better human being. So I think that's more important because tennis is temporary, right? It's there. We love it, but we want to be better human beings. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's that's really the key that you mentioned there towards the end about a lot of times we were faced with these um, difficult decisions where we want to be lazy, but if we seek the discomfort and take action, that's where we'll improve and become better. And, you know, take these uh, obstacles and turn them into opportunities. So something that's really uh, interesting here that uh, especially for a lot of people listening is that, that you mentioned about self-development and that's obviously a lot, a lot of us players, are, we need to do that, especially if we don't have a ton of coaching. So what are some strategies for self-development? Maybe you playing like all these tournaments in a row, comparing that to USCA players playing a ton of USCA matches and then just a few practices here and there. So what are some ways to really actually improve yourself, uh, you know, versus just like playing the same old game every single match? No, that's a great question. Um, the way I kind of would uh, go about it now, because as you develop, you grow and think about the game in different ways. It's, it's important to, you know, at least the way I, I grew up, I had to play a bunch of matches to kind of develop and learn about myself versus really getting one-on-one -on -one attention where someone could really tell you that this is what your game's really like and you know this is what you should do and be moldable in, in terms of what your abilities are and whatnot i would definitely look at always look at what you do well like you know for me personally i was more of a natural net player so to speak and i was quick and you know i would i would go back and be a counter puncher but i wasn't fully developed as a junior to have someone just say, look, you got to just go to the net and be able to get to the net and, and develop. But, but your, your style is more catered to getting to the, getting to the net, taking balls a little bit earlier and shortening the points and, and use your hands to be able to, to, to control the point and, 
put pressure on your opponent. So on an early, you know, for, for guys that are, you know, playing juniors, let's say, or even adults and that are getting into the game a little more, I would definitely say, look at what your strengths are, right? And everybody has a strength, whether it's a forehand, whether it's a backhand, whether it's a serve, you know, I'm talking about competitive players, they, they have something that they rely on and that they go, go to, and you can develop those over time as well. Right. But from an early age, I'm pretty sure like you look at Nadal, you could, you could probably Google or YouTube 16 or something, 15, you know, even younger, he's sitting there ripping forehands, you know, you could see this on YouTube. Right. So you can definitely see that his natural ability to hit the forehand was huge. Like he just, he was going for it in terms of being brave and whether it be Uncle Tony telling him to hit it. He was developing that certain shot where I'm sure he, you know, I heard from other players at the beginning when he came on tour, he wasn't, his backhand wasn't very solid. But now, you know, that his forehand was so deadly that he was winning all his points running around his forehand. Over time, he developed and he, and he got it better. And then his backhand got better and his serve, everything got better. But in terms of looking at the highest levels, you know, you want to overall round off your game. Like we all want to play like Federer, right? You know, you want, you want to be able to chip and come to the net and be able to slice and be able to come around the ball and, and drive your backhand and, and hit a big forehand and have flawless footwork. But I think looking at what you do well specifically and really molding the game around that will give you more benefit then going into matches and then trying to uh, trying to develop your your game around that will give you a lot more confidence. I wish I did that earlier and that I learned that later. Kind of had to suffer through it and take a bunch of losses. Learn what your strengths are earlier than later and and try to mold your game around that. And then and then obviously other things are going to get better as well, right? It's just gonna those things are going to cater to your strengths, and uh, that's my opinion. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I was actually on a webinar yesterday with Craig O'Shaughnessy, who uh, was a strategist for, for Novak Djokovic. And he was just saying like, you just got to hit, hit more forehands. Cause I mean, that's the weapon for most people. And, you know, it's just a you know, percentage wise when they analyze the points, like, you know, the more you hit forehands, uh, the more you're winning the points. So um, definitely focusing on your strengths and just pitting that against uh, opponents weaknesses is uh, the way to go for sure. So Gibran, as far as like, uh, your professional uh, experience at, uh, on the Pro Tour. I think in reading uh, some of your background, you started kind of late. So I was wondering if you could just walk me through like when you started on the tour and also really uh, interestingly, you, just the experience of it all. Yeah, no. So basically after, after college, I, I kind of put a break on tennis for a bit just to kind of help out the family in terms of financial situation. So I was coaching quite a bit, but I still love the game and I would try to train and still playing slash coaching was a tough time. Um, but then, you know, playing opens on the weekends here in Canada and then also having those long gaps of winter, sometimes playing, sometimes not. I had some opportunities to play the futures here in Canada and Toronto a couple of years in a row. My thing was, you know, can't really say full on that I was on tour. Uh, I was definitely trying to get some ATP points. Um, and uh, so basically my first points I picked up were in Toronto playing local. There's three tournaments here in Toronto. Um, and I think it was the last event in, uh, in Toronto. There's three weeks in a row that, I qualified and then I ended up picking my first point up, which was incredibly tough. Like, I mean, you know, guys, you know, that are out there that have been on, that are listening to this too, and that have been out there and tr just getting your first ATP point is such a grind and so tough because there's so many great players out there and 
and they're all trying to aspire to the same goals of trying to make it in terms of their uh, rankings and trying to get get up there. And uh, it, it was tough. It was tough, but it was a great experience. You really had to, you know, I took so many losses in qualies and, you know, you get to the last round of qualies, you, you qualify and then you lose first round because, you, you know, you run into a good seed that's ranked pretty high and experienced players. But again, I, I look at all of that. I would definitely, I tell my, again, I tell my players that, I've taken more losses than wins in my career, right? You know, they think I'm this uh, this guy that's, you know, won all these matches and it's just been a winning percentage. But it's it's definitely been way more losses than wins. But again, that those losses have really developed and molded who I was as a tennis player. And I improved through that because that's how that's how I learned, right? I mean, took the failures and then the failures turned eventually, you know, getting back out, putting putting the work in. And the failures turned into a little bit of success. So uh, in terms of the uh, getting my first ATP point, and that was such a relief. And um, it's tough. It's tough out there. You know, people think the, the ATP tour is, uh, is, is such extravagant life. And the, the guys on the top, obviously, the guys that are in the top 50, top 100, even top 50, like guys that are making the Masters. And those, those guys are a little more settled into having a little more, you know, say in terms of them making their, you know, more flexibility and making money and also uh, being out there with, uh, you know, having a little bit of red carpet treatment at these tournaments, you know, getting getting free food and stay and all that. But they deserve it. They put in the grind and they got, they went through this. Everybody has to go through the same channel and, and go up and, and grind it through the, you know, the amateurs in terms of the satellites and um, futures and ch- challengers. Uh, tour, but yeah, you know what? I remember we would rent rooms, and there'd be times where three or four guys would be staying in one room. I remember honestly, this is a real story. We were like sleeping in the bathtub one day because we didn't have beds to share. So because we're trying to, you know, save our money for the next week, right? Because if you let's say you lose first round, you know, the winner of the tournament in a futures event is going to get like fifteen hundred bucks. Like that's barely covering your costs for a ticket, you know, or if you're flying somewhere else. It's so it's a it's a grind out there. And then, you know, if you lose, you're out there just training to get ready for the next week. And and you're out there by yourself. It's tough. I mean, it's the cool thing about the traveling part, at least, is you meet new friends and, and players that are out there that are trying to do the same thing as you. So you make lifetime friends that I still am in touch with and who share stories. That, you know, remember, I remember that this tournament, we had this little fun thing. And so, you know, the memories are always going to be there. But I think the experience of just being out there and being able to taste what it was like in terms of the in terms of the grind of the tour it's uh, it's a very difficult thing so you have hats off to the guys that are on the tops for them to do it day in day out week in week week out to put in the practices and to put in the the to persevere and and to really have the discipline to be the best in the world it's uh it's unbelievable those guys are those guys are that good yeah it's uh really some amazing insights there you talk about learning more about yourself, especially after matches. Can you remember one particular tough loss that you had? And then I guess afterwards, um, you know, something that you were able to identify that you needed to improve in your game. That uh, could be any area. Uh, and if you could just share that with us, I think that would be interesting. So um, basically the one, I remember one match critically the year after I'd won my first point, I was trying to, so what you have to do on the tour for the guys that don't know how it works is you have to basically get the same uh, points or better to keep your ranking on the tour, right? So if I had one ATP point and let's say I was ranked 1500 or 1200 in the world, 
I want to try to keep my one point or else I'm going to lose my ranking the next year. So I, I remember it was the last tournament of the year because again, I was maybe playing three to four tournaments a year because I was still working and trying to pay the mortgage and, you know, support family and then, you know, wait for my three tournaments in the year here and locally because I wasn't able to get out and actually travel the globe full on and, and play, uh, play all the satellites and stuff. But, you know, I played this match last round of qualities to try to get into the main draw. And I was, I was in the lead. I was up a set and I was up five, two. Mm. And I let my foot off the pedal just a little bit. I relaxed mentally. And I almost thought to myself, you know what, that's it. Like I wasn't thinking in the moment I started thinking, well, I got this match. And, um, next thing you know, the guy gets a little bit of momentum. He gets back into the match. It's 5-2, Now I'm getting a little tighter. He's getting looser. And next thing you know, he wins the set 7-5. Didn't win a game after that. Mm. Um, and he's getting confident. And third set, I still wasn't able to turn it on in terms of my... And we all know as tennis players, people that have competed, they know a match can turn around just like that. And uh, so mentally, I definitely let that that set go and then third set I tried to battle and it went back and forth and I lost that set 6-4 but it was tough to get it back but then I looked back at that match and I said you know what and there's been thousands of matches like that but that one's really hurt because it was it was really um it was the one that I could have possibly kept my ranking on because mm. I lost my ranking the next year uh because of that so uh, I ended up losing that match, and then I thought to myself, went back to the drawing board. It hurt, like obviously that those kind of losses hurt. Any loss hurts. No one wants to really lose, but you know, going back to the drawing board, I definitely was um, thinking about how I could have just kept the mentality of staying in the moment versus being distracted by the future or you know being distracted by other things. Uh, whether it be the sun or whether it be, you know, your, the other person's, you know, crew is cheering out, you know, cheering against you or, and all those things matter. And the cool thing about these stories is that I can share these stories with juniors and my players that, you know what, I can relate. Like if you just lost that tough match, Hey, you know, what was going on and how you can learn from it because every loss or a win and whether they're winning, I'm still going to ask them the same, you know, a lot of the same questions in terms of how'd you play? You know, what were you thinking? What could you do better? So I really had to go back to the drawing board on that one, more so mentally than than tactically. I mean, tactically, you know, I could have done some things, but I, I mentally let, let that let that match go um, in terms of what my task was. And my task initially was to really, you know, move the guy around and again, get to the net because it was indoor tennis. And when I was putting a lot of pressure on him with my serve and, and first shots, uh, after that, whether it be serve plus one or return plus one, my goal was uh, to really take away time from the guy because he was a solid baseliner and I didn't want to get into rallies with him and take time away from him because uh, it was a faster court. And, and I, I started playing his game in the third set. So that's what, what lost me the match, but also it was more up here, which we realize as tennis players that meant the mental game of tennis is, is definitely a huge thing that plays, plays a big role. Yeah, hundred percent. There. Thanks for sharing that experience. And speaking of experiences, um, you've played uh, in Davis Cup for Pakistan, and I was wondering uh, to ask you, uh, you know, how that opportunity came about, uh, and then we'll get into some other questions. 
So that was an interesting story as well. I uh, was was actually visiting uh, Pakistan, and uh, we we were there actually more so for an uncle. He was uh, he was not well, so we wanted to kind of uh, say hello and see how he was doing. And I hadn't visited uh, Pakistan for a long time, and uh, I was actually in training mode, so I I, I was I was I was in shape. And uh, what happened was while we were there, we were there for a few months, I got invited to uh, a tournament, a local like open event, and I ended up doing quite well in it. And then I got invited to trials, which were they're like, hey, you know what? Trials are happening for Davis Cup. Uh, do you want to try out? Because we're looking for players to add to the add to the squad. And I was just kind of like, whoa, this is pretty cool. I mean, luckily, I was actually for that for that situation I was um I was I was in town cuz they're you know locally in Islamabad they had the trials so that I tried out it was a it was a tough it was a tough tryout because there were six or six guys six of the top uh Pakistani players uh we had to do a round robin every day for 6 days hmm. and we had to play best of 3 out of 5 sets on uh on clay so so you can imagine the grind and then the uh the weather there in, at that time in general most of the year it's quite hot but we're talking like 40 degrees canadian and probably over what was that like over uh, close to 100 no i mean like what's that yeah. 90, 90 something it was hot and but i think because i was in shape and i was physically i remember i was probably in the best physical shape of my life that really got me through it because i wasn't really in tennis shape so to speak but then i think my physicality got me through those round robin matches and uh one story was like the last the very last match it was a make it or break it type of thing situation if i won the match i was on the team and if i lost uh, the other guy was on the team so wow. a lot of pressure but actually that was a that was a cool story uh to share that uh we played uh we played first two sets i actually ended up losing so because it was best of 5 i lost the first two sets you know i was actually because it was clay, you can't really get into the net as much. And uh, I was trying to kind of out hit the guy and shorten points from the baseline. And the guy was was actually really good with just picking out, taking pace and putting putting the balls into the corners and making me run. So uh, he won the first two sets. And I was like, oh, man. So now I'm looking up a mountain thinking like, okay, this is going to be a tough grind uh, to, to battle this out. And so what I started to do just, you know, I this was a random thing where, you know, we were, where I was moved side to side and I threw a ball up high to him, kind of a moon, moon ball type of ball, you know, like 20 feet in the air, you know, kind of a rising ball above the guy's shoulder. And the guy hits, he hits a short ball, like right in the service box, you know, a ball fed into the service box. And I step in, take the ball early and get into the net and, and put the ball away on a volley. And then, okay, try it again. I'm like, all right, let's put it up and give him another high ball above the shoulder. So the guy, and I couldn't figure this out for the first two sets because I was out hit, I was trying to out hit him and he just loved balls right, like right in his waist height. And uh, so anyways, the guy couldn't hit anything over his shoulder. Wow. So then I mixed it up. I just went high, heavy, you know, I mixed up the pace. I went slower, higher balls. Next thing you know, he starts dumping balls in the service line again. And then I just, I exploited that play and, and I won the third set. Then I won the fourth set. Now we're in the fifth. And this is getting to the sixth day um, of round robin matches where both of us have been just spent with 
couple of matches where went a couple of matches that were five sets before that right and uh getting accustomed to the weather and so anyway so because of the mixing up uh, of play high ball by the fifth set you know i was slicing a bit i was changing up the pace with like a hard ball then i'd throw in a high ball so to not to just you know give them only high balls I eventually you could start grooving on them then i mixed it up and then he actually started cramping at what was it two all in the fifth set he had to take a timeout and then anyways finally ended up grinding that match out uh it was like six three in the fifth set and i was just like you know i was just laying there on the clay like <laughs> after the match just like what just happened yeah. And that was a really, really cool, cool uh, experience for me because then having the check mark on you're on the team now. And then two weeks after that, we were in uh, Iran, actually, to play oh. our first uh, Davis Cup tie, which was at that time we were in group three. And so we uh, and then I got to meet Assam Qureshi, who who's who's a great doubles uh, player and a singles player. He got to top 100 in singles as well. And then he started focusing more on on doubles and uh you know a great guy great uh teammate and so he came in for again two weeks after trials uh we had a davis cup practice um with the team the guys that were on the team so Sam koreshi came and and then uh you know we had a we had a practice and and got to meet them and it was just a new it, i wasn't expected again i was just there in pakistan to to really just meet family and friends and then next thing you know in a few weeks later i'm on i'm on a flight to go to iran to play my first davis cup tie like it was a dream uh dream come true really right so uh i guess it happened at the right time and uh so yeah so we went to iran to play our first davis cup tie at that time being in group three the the, the setup was actually you had like eight eight or ten teams from that we were in the asia pacific uh you know zone of play and they um they had a bunch of teams like Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Iran, Syria, a bunch of other uh, teams that were there uh, that were kind of doing a round robin play. And then we ended up uh, getting, we actually won the tournament. So we we played Iran in the semifinals, I remember. So we were in Tehran, uh, the capital. They have a great facility there because, I mean, they had a setup back then. They had a setup in the 70s, I think, uh, with the Shah. Yeah. And he had some, you know, the main facility in terms of the f sports facility, unbelievable. And we were blown away because, you know, you hear stories that obviously on media saying, you know, uh, the country was modern, very modern country. They had a setup in, in place at the club that was just top notch. We had security for each team, this, that. This facility was unbelievable. They had clay courts, red clay, but they had like little mini stadiums for each court. It was all, it was awesome. And then they had a main stadium court as well as soccer facilities so their their sport facility was unbelievable uh but that's where we played and beautiful scenery as well we had a big mountain in the back back so it was, it was a great experience and so we played iran in the in the semis and then who would we play in the finals i think we beat sri lanka in the finals of that event which moved us on to group two for the next year so that was a crew i mean you know first first time and i was playing doubles uh specifically with my teammate uh, Asim Shafiq at that time, and uh, Qureshi was playing most mostly singles, and then he would play doubles with his partner uh, Akil Khan, uh, who's a good player as well. So no, I mean, and and I was uh, in the round robins, and we went four and zero, which was which was amazing, you know, to to go out and for the first time being able to win your four first four matches at, in Davis Cup against some of these other teams. It was it was just unbelievable. Couldn't ask for more. It was a dream come true, and. Again, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't planned, you know, like I'm gonna try out, I'm gonna go aspire to play Davis Cup. It was just it was just a neat story 
to be able to do that. So, uh, and then the following year, we played Philippines um, in a tie and in Manila. And uh, we played against uh, Akil Khan and I played doubles and we played against Cecile Mamet. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. Cecile. Uh, yep. He was a top, I think, top 60, he was top 60 ATP. And then Treat, the Conrad Treat Huey, Tret yeah, Huey. That's my played. Buddy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Podcast so, too, yeah. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So, at that time, uh, I didn't know who Conrad was, but then he ended up becoming a really good double specialist. He got, yeah. you know, he what was what was his ranking at one point? He got he got up there, right? Yeah, really high, top twenty maybe. Yeah, uh, so maybe higher. Yeah. So we uh, we lost straight sets to those guys, but it was it was an awesome experience being away and then playing an away match in Manila. You know, visiting Manila and and during that time it was monsoon. Uh, weather too so we were kind of in an indoor it was honestly the most humid place i've ever played and been in after every practice we'd be you know i remember back then we didn't have the whole media thing but you know we'd be drenching our socks and in our in our shirts and after practice and like just water would be just pouring out of our our out of our clothes and stuff that's how humid it was but we played away there and uh and then playing away obviously dealing with the crowd, the crowds against you. And it kind of reminded us of a little bit of college tennis, you know, in college tennis, obviously you get, you get guys from the other team, uh, talking, talking you up and Mm -hmm. talking some smack, like you, you know, you're not good. You suck. And you you can't play trying to get into your head a little bit. And initially, and you know what I'm talking about, you play college tennis. I remember a group of guys would stand right behind you in the fence. They, you know, when no one's around, just talking smack, like, you know, while you're picking up a ball to go serve again, they're just trying to get into your head so you can, you know, lose to their teammate. Right. But you, you learn, you learn as you go that you got to learn how to block that stuff out. And that's part of the, the grind and the suffering that you go through of competition. You have to, you have to learn how to block those things out and focus on what you're your tasks ahead are in the match and and that that part was cool too to to be away in manila and 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 uh it was a nice crowd they weren't you know getting rowdy like you hear some stories in south america you know people throwing chairs and stuff at <laughs> at uh some of these players but it was it was really it was a really cool experience we ended up losing that tie to them we didn't have a psalm unfortunately he was actually playing a ch- a big atp event that he couldn't get out of to play he was still in a tournament so you couldn't get out of it to play uh, a davis cup event so unfortunately, last minute we had to change up the lineups a bit and and play uh, play up a little bit. And so the experience, but you know, I can't take that experience away. It was awesome. You know, we were playing uh, against some some legendary players with Cecile and and then Conrad being an awesome doubles player in the future. So great experience. It was awesome. Very cool. Well, uh, as a half Iranian, half Filipino, it was particularly nice to hear about those. That's stories. awesome, man. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, what's the chances yeah. of that? So yeah, that's really um, that is really cool. So yeah, no, it was, it was, it was awesome. And also, you know, visiting these again, tennis, you know, I would say the experiences and the, the, the opportunities you get to see different places as well. You know, I can never take that back. You see different communities, you see different lifestyles. You, you know, I remember even in Pakistan, my home country, uh, I was born there. So the cool thing about it, I look back at it now, my parents were living in Canada. They were visiting Pakistan and I was born there. And then they came back when I was like maybe six or seven months old. And uh, I looked, I always thought about that. And I, you know, we have dual citizenship in terms of Canadian and, and Pakistani. And, uh, and I was like, man, like, so why do I have this uh, Pakistani passport? And then, you know, I wouldn't have played Davis Cup if I didn't have my Pakistani passport, right? I wasn't going to be able to do that. So everything kind of works out, but also 
you know, seeing those third, third world countries, you know, the, the tough circumstances that people live in, in terms of poverty. And it really, again, it opens your eyes that it opens your eyes up to the, the fact that we have it pretty good here in the West. And, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are suffering, but then the, the opportunities that I've gotten to be able to, to play and, and get those get experiences under the belt, you know, very grateful for those, uh, opportunities. And, um, you know, wouldn't take it back for, for anything. So. hundred percent. Yeah. Just being able to represent your country. I'm sure you felt uh, really proud about that. Um, and yeah, when you talked about like heckling, I remember one time in Cornell, we were playing a Cornell invitational tournament and some guy w- was saying, my grandmother plays better than you. Like when I was picking up the ball. So I, I'm sure you got much worse, but I thought that was funny. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So it, and you know, you've had some really great uh, memories. You know, I've, I was searching your Instagram to be fully transparent to see, uh, you know, what was going on in the past as well. And uh, you had a lot of really great practices with some people I wrote down here, like uh, Novak Djokovic, Brian Brothers, Sitsipas, uh, Shapovalov, Canadian, of course. Uh, I think you played a match with him. So I was curious um, to ask you in particular about uh, about Djokovic, maybe just some observations that you had when you uh, actually practiced with him or any particular routines or anything like that that you could kind of uh, give us a, a peek into. Again, with with that opportunity, you know, I was here uh, playing when I was training and and playing out of an academy here in Tennis Canada. Basically, it was called Players Edge, and and Tennis Canada was um, giving us the courts to use. I was at that time when I was playing slash coaching. I was working with performance players here uh, at that time, much younger Braden Schnur, who's now on mm-hmm. tour and doing quite well, and Carol Zhao, who's on the WTA mm-hmm. tour. Uh, I'd be hitting with them like daily, which was really good because then it kind of got me to keep my, I wasn't just feeding balls. I was able to train with them, which helped me play and then kind of get noticed by Tennis Canada. And and also, so they gave me the opportunity to get in there while the Rogers Cup would happen. They invited me to be a hitting partner, which was a really, really cool experience. And, uh, you know, I thank Tennis Canada for that. And it was uh, it was cool because you really get to see what it's all about. Like when we when we see the players, we get to watch them on TV and we just see the performance on on TV. And but when you see these guys, whether it's warming up behind closed doors, whether it's preparing uh, for a match, like in terms of what they do in their practices, just their discipline and what they do on and off the court is is unbelievable. It's mind boggling in terms of preparation uh Djokovic Djokovic you watch him he 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 warms up properly uh, with a with, with like a half an hour 45 minute dynamic warm-up you know that he does mm-hmm. and and then he gets his body you know loosened up to hit his first ball on the practice court and again this is this is really important feedback to learn for all of us especially you know juniors and and adult players uh that play now we're trying to bring it in to the every one of my programs that work as well to say guys we gotta try to 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 warm up properly to get ready to hit our first ball instead of just going out there cold so Djokovic you know unbelievable flexibility I remember my first hit with him it was uh it was unbelievable and we were on center court uh at uh at the Rogers Cup and you know he came in he was already warmed up in terms of physical warm-up and then he got on court and he was doing extra stretches you know his flexibility we all know is is unbelievable. He had his leg up on his 
one of his trainers shoulders, you know, his, his legs like all the way up here. And, and, uh, you know, he's doing his, his, his elastic band, uh, exercises as well. And, uh, their, their discipline is unbelievable on court, but the, the hit, the hit was, hit, it was really, really cool. You know, you think the guys would blow you off the court or something, but they know how to give you rhythm. And I'm a nobody to him in, in general, in, in, in the broad, uh, uh, you know, spectrum of, of ATP tour players, but they're, they know how to give players rhythm, whether it be a hitting partner, whether it be another guy on tour, you know, we started off playing mini tennis, really. I mean, like we hit minis for a few minutes and a lot of guys think, you know, minis is like, oh, it's for, we shouldn't be hitting minis. Let's just just go straight back. Djokovic was hitting mini tennis, right? Just to warm up the hands and the warm up the little mini turns and the setup and the feet. And then we gradually started moving back to three quarter court. And then all the way back to full court. And then five, 10 minutes in, then you start grooving, it gets looser. You know, I get looser. I get a little more comfortable. Obviously, I was like tight in the beginning. And I actually had a had a good like 30 to 45 minute hit before, you know, going out to practice with Djokovic because I wanted to be loose. I didn't want to be tight. So uh, I remember, you know, I told my coach he was really excited and he fed me balls literally for like 45 minutes going on before I hit with Djokovic. I was almost nice. like tired before getting on. So. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted to make sure I was loosened up and not tight, so I give them a good hit. But yeah, no, they give you warm, they give you a good rhythm, which is important for for our programs too. You see, some players can give you rhythm, and some players start blasting right away, and then the 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 timing of of the back and forth can be lost. But the, the ATP guys know exactly how to give you rhythm and timing, and then and then you kind of you build up confidence as well. And and then once they hit three or four balls through the middle, then they hit one into the corner, right, just to loosen up and feel their real shot right that we you know average joes can't handle so um but no it was it was an awesome experience you know he takes the ball unbelievably early once he started loosening up i mean there's some video footage on on instagram some small clips and stuff uh of us hitting but you know he takes the ball right off the baseline unbelievable you know compact swings but just i totally understand how he's number one in the world and he hits the ball so deep in the court and there's times where you just feel like you can't breathe because he, he just takes so much time away from you. When he started really going, getting looser 30, 40 minutes in, then then you really realize the pace and, and the depth, consistent pace and depth that he's hitting with, with ease, relative ease. And, and the setup and the preparation is just, it's unbelievable. So that we can all, all learn from. Amazing stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy, you know, how much, as you mentioned, discipline these players have that they're like, two hours or whatever amount of time that they're preparing before they even like step out on the court with a dynamic warm up and the and then the actual warm up with you and then you know other stuff probably so uh really really amazing I'm curious about how you feel because sometimes i think about this uh with you know practice partners when they play with amazing players at pro tournaments uh and help warm them up you know i had the uh, I've talked to other practice partners for the city open too. And so what's the feeling for you mentally? You mentioned you were a little bit tight. Uh, you know, did the practice beforehand help you uh, get a little bit less nervous? Like what was the nerve, uh, nerve level for you as well? Well, initially the first year that I did it, I was, uh, I was quite nervous and I actually started doing it more so with the WTA. So I got invited once with the ladies and uh, it was interesting with the ladies. It was, it was a little more, restricted because the ladies hit a little flatter through the court so they don't want you to hit with too much spin so i remember who was it petrova so i hit with nadia petrova 
a couple of years back, right? And uh, interesting story, we're hitting and her coach at that time, I totally forget his name, but anyways, he, we, we had met on tour in the past and he just got hired by her to be her, uh, her coach. And we're hitting and, you know, I'm hitting normally, like, cause it was my first hit on the tour, on the WTA tour, you know, practice partner thing. And, and the coach comes over after a few minutes and he's like, she wants, she wants you to hit with less spin, just hit a little bit flatter, please. So then I naturally guys hit a little more spin. They hit heavy, you know, a little higher over the net and stuff in general. So, uh, so I started kind of going a bit flatter. So I'm changing my stroke all of a sudden yeah. and I start shanking balls and I start missing. And next thing you know, like it's not as consistent as of a hit for her because I'm shanking some balls because I'm tr having to change my, my stroke. And next thing you know, she, she calls them over again. And, and, uh, after about half an hour of hitting again, and she was, maybe in a bad mood or whatever she's like he's she just wants me to beat her balls and stuff so she didn't even say thank you or nothing but <laughs> it was uh it was a tough one after that it was and look i mean and the ladies are great a lot of the great ladies are awesome that one for me that personal experience was like oh okay this was tough and just yeah. in general trying to change your stroke and stuff so so i kind of got put off by that a bit in terms of changing your stroke is going to be tough so once the guys came around i started doing a little more with the guys and and so then I got the experience of, of, of hitting with guys like Djokovic, Nishikori, mm. Del Potro, uh, Song, uh, Federer actually at Wimbledon once, which was an unbelievable story as well because I was training in the UK for a few years. So uh, not a few years, sorry, a few months. I was visiting the UK and uh, a friend of mine actually sent me out there for a month or so. His son was, was coaching out there. And, I mean, not sorry, uh, playing out there. So there's a place called Bisham Abbey Sports Center in uh, UK. It's just about 45 minutes outside of uh, uh, of London, and uh, so there's this this academy called Wind Tennis. And I was training there a lot of the UK juniors and like some of the top juniors in the world, and 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 guys that were on tour were were competing there as as an academy. So I was I was training there for a few months and. I was like, you know, this guy is just working really, really hard because I got this opportunity for the first time in my life to actually train somewhere where it was taken care of, right? Um, which was awesome. A friend of mine sponsored that 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 trip out there, and 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 I got a chance to be like, wow, I can actually train with with not having the restriction of I can only do this twice a week, or so it was a full on go and train and and work hard, right? That's all we care about. So I I worked really, really hard at that time and this was like 2007 actually this was actually before this leads this is interesting because this is why i was in shape for my davis cup which was in 2008 and 9 mm. so i was in peak performance shape in terms of my my fitness and because i was training literally you know we'd wake up first do our fitness session a little bit of a fitness session a couple of days a week and then i was playing easily four hours six hours we were playing four to six hours a day with fitness involved as well at this academy, right? Two hours of, of training in the morning and then match play in the afternoon for about an hour and a half, two hours. And then we do fitness at the end of the day, which was led by an ex special ops guy from UK, which was, he was really, he was working us hard. So I was really in peak performance uh, shape with, with physically also mentally with playing matches and playing some of the top guys in, in the UK at that time too, like, uh, um, will, uh, what's his name, man? My brain just shut off there. 
who's a gentleman that plays? He's a good buddy of mine too. Will uh, Will he played Federer? He qualified. He, it was a great story. He ended up playing Fed first round. He qualified in Wimbledon. He's from yeah, UK. I uh, my mind just shut off. Anyways, his name's Will. Uh, Will Will Will. He'll come back to me. But yeah, he trained there at that time. He was a junior and like Neil Poffley, some of these guys that were there. So, anyways, I was working so hard that Martina Hingis's uh, agent was actually a member at that club, and she was looking for someone to hit with Martina at Wimbledon. So, surprisingly, the coaches at the club approached me and they're like, "Do you want to hit with? Uh, you want to be with Martina Hingis's practice partner at Wimbledon?" And I was like, "You know, I, was, I remember I was running on the." treadmill and uh the guy came up to me he's like you want to go to wimbledon i was like are you joking me like this is of course it's gonna be an unbelievable experience so so yeah so i uh that the week after i was uh on the train to go to london and then we were at the all all england club club right which was unbelievable that's like a lifetime dream to actually play there on tour but that didn't happen unfortunately because it wasn't good enough but <laughs> but I got a chance to be on, you watch the TV all the time and you see like the gates at all England club and, you know, I walk through the gates and, and then you're there with Martina Hingis, who is a famer and an unbelievable tennis player. And the very first day we got out to practice on the courts and the practice courts at that time, a week before the event are just unbelievably beautiful, green, lush courts. They're not uh, at all mess from the baseline or anything, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, you, you see two weeks in and, you know, yeah, the court's I'm pretty right. bashed up. But Federer's practicing right next to us with some junior, right? And and I was just blown away. This first time I ever seen Federer live, and this was 2007 Wimbledon we're talking mm-hmm. about now, and that was the year he ended up beating uh, Nadal, which he started getting closer and closer. You could see Nadal was like he lost in the fourth or the fifth set. I can't remember. I think it was four sets, and Federer took it took the title. And then the following year in 2008, that was a big match that you know Nadal ended up taking Federer out. But anyway, so Federer was there, and obviously Hengus being swiss as well she introduced me to federer and i was like wow. just, literally i was just so nervous and i was like oh my gosh what's going on because this was i was starstruck that was the first time i was actually exposed this was all before rogers cup hits and everything back mm. in 2007 when i was exposed to these top players you know you see you look down the court you see safin you see gonzalez you see sick. you know these sick names and you know unbelievable tennis players and i was just like in la la land right i was like what's going on here like i wasn't expected to be here and now i'm here and i'm talking to federer and so she actually, he was looking for a hit uh, the next day because he couldn't find a hit because, you know, early on in the week and guys weren't there yet fully and other guys were. So she asked me, she's like, do you want to you want to hit with him? And I'm like, I was just like in awe. And I was like, are you joking? <laughs> me? What's going on here? So, yeah. So the week after uh, the day after I ended up getting out on the grass courts at Wimbledon with Fed, it was just unbelievable. Right. So playing on grass with him and that experience was unbelievable because he's such a genuine guy. He's such a nice guy. And the grass on grass, if guys that haven't played on grass, the bounce the bounce actually bounces a little bit lower. So but again, he, he was really, really comforting in terms of not making me feel nervous and, and giving you, you know, rhythm and timing. And he and he's actually way more relaxed than other guys when he's practicing. Mm. Uh, if you've watched him practice and on YouTube, like he's just very, very relaxed and, and he can give you a lot of easy um rhythm and timing to deal with and then you know he'll 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 kind of hit hit a big one into the corner and and change up pace and whatnot but they again these guys know how to how to build up the pace so to speak right so that that was an unbelievable unbelievable experience that i never imagined that was going to happen so that was that was cool and then that whole week i trained with hingis as well um getting her ready for the tournament she was coming back from injury at that time i think from a hip injury and 
she was in and out of maybe playing or maybe not. So she played a couple rounds and she lost, I think, early. But but again, that was a great experience. Uh, it was just right in the right place at the right time. And who would have thought that was going to happen? And, you know, watching matches at All England Club uh, was, was just unbelievable. Live, you know, live matches. Never would have thought I was going to be able to go there. So that was cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And yeah, it was uh, uh, Marcus Willis, I think, is who we were. Marcus Willis, sorry. He's going to kill me for that because I talked to him all the time. (laughs) My mind went blank. Marcus, sorry, buddy. Uh, You know, Marcus, I've been asking Gibran questions for over an hour here, and uh, it's excusable. But, uh, and yeah, so in terms of uh, Federer, any contract? Well, I guess you mentioned, seemed like I guess Federer might have been a little looser. Was any other contrast that you can see between him and Djokovic when you were actually on court? So they they all have different uh, ways of how they approach it in terms of their uh, and the cool thing about these top guys like Nadal, Fed, and Djokovic they're they're kind of ghosts, sort of speak. When you're out there, because I, I get like this all pass, you know, this pass to get behind behind into the into the lockers and also into the you know where the guys train and the gyms and 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 stuff and where they're hanging out the players' lounge and stuff, just to get an idea of what these guys are really doing and what the atmosphere is like but these guys come in they're ghosts you see them for a few minutes and then they're they're gone they go into like they almost have like their own setup their own private rooms set up through whatever the atp or whatever that they want to be kind of on their own with their teams to, to prepare right they're not out in the open as much as the other guys are whether it's because they just feel comfortable doing their own thing or whether they want to hide their secret recipes behind closed doors but it's pretty cool you know, you see, you see the guys warm up and stuff, but those guys, sort of speak, they come and then you see them and then they leave, they disappear. And then you see them again for a little bit. And then they, they, you know, and obviously they're busy guys too. They're doing post and pre interviews and, you know, obviously they have so much going on, but they are definitely on another uh, focus level than the other guys uh, from what I saw, right. They have blinders on, they come in and they don't really mingle as much with the other guys, especially when they're in, in tournament mode. Whereas, you know, the other guys could be, you know, Malfis is like playing table tennis with some guys or, yeah. or you know, uh, and they're all, you know, obviously they're all focused tennis players. But the cool thing about the guys is that they're all week in, week out. They're, they're, they're chilling with each other every week. They see each other. Right. So they really are enjoying being around each other, which is really cool to see or else the environment would be a little bit tough. Right. To deal with. So they're playing pool if they're out. You know, I remember watching like Milos Raonic play pool with like Bognini. And so those guys are on their downtime. I remember one year I was at the Rogers Cup and uh, Olympics was going on, I think the week before, during that same kind of time. And the tennis was over, but the track and field was still going on. So all the players, you know, it was a rain delay. And we're all like, there was about 15, 20 guys, you know, there uh, from the top 15 that were just sitting around, huddled around, uh, a TV watching Hussein Bolt's like world record race uh, when he was about to run the hundred meter dash. Right. And it was unbelievable. Like it was just like, and that's, I find that's really cool too. When other sportsmen are actually watching other unbelievable sportsmen, you know, and supporting other sportsmen on, on TV and really watching whether it be basketball or whether it be, you know, watching Hussein Bolt's track and field run, that was a cool experience. And, uh, but yeah, no, those guys have blinders on and they, the top guys definitely are an, at another focus level and they're really, they're really disciplined. I remember a year where Murray ended up beating Djokovic in Montreal while I was there. And you could see uh, that year Nadal was kind of when we had, I think it was, I can't remember the year. I think it was, 
2013 or 12. But anyways, Murray ended up beating Djokovic in the finals. It was a really good match, actually, the Montreal Masters finals. If you guys look that up on YouTube, it was a tight three-set battle. And that whole week, you could see Murray was on, an, on another level of focus. He was training hard. He was putting in that extra little bit after practice, you know, on the court. His discipline level with with his um, warm up routines and after after match being on the bike and then getting stretched out and then being on the massage tables and so you could just see he had blinders on and that's when he really was playing quite well and Nadal was kind of on he was taking that one year break there where whether he was injured or whatnot but you could see Nadal for the first time was sitting around watching golf for like that tournament I remember now and you never see that from guys like that right so he was watching golf he was playing some video games. And again, these guys need some time off. You know, you look at their schedules, it's unbelievable. And that's why hats off to especially these top three, four guys that they've been doing it for so long and to be able to do it week in, week out for so many years, you know, you'd think you scratch your head, like how do these guys not take time off? And I get it, right? Nadal was probably just taking a little bit of a breather that year in terms of his focus. You could definitely see it. And he, I think he lost to like Nishikori or something that, that year, but he was just a little more reserved and chilled out mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of his focus. But you could see the people that the, the players that were focused and and not not as I'm gonna just chill out and hang out with my buddies and the stuff were really doing well. You could see that, and that can learn from that as tennis players. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, that's super cool stuff there. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. As far as... uh your experience with the Bryan brothers, like, was that was a totally different, you know, where you were just like doing a bunch of uh, like volleying and stuff like that. And how are they as well? So with the Bryans, it was really cool. Those guys are awesome guys, really nice guys. And um, I got introduced to them as well at, uh, they were looking for a guy to actually serve to Bob Bryan because he's a lefty. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so actually to Mike, sorry. Because uh, Mike's a righty, and then Bob, they always usually like as doubles guys, especially with the Bryans, because they're brothers. They always just usually train with each other. But they needed an extra guy that day, specifically with the first time I actually got onto court with them, and they needed a guy to serve to Mike, a righty to serve to Mike to get ready for their next match. So I got on court, and they were hitting, and they literally just for the first time they wanted me to just to be there just to serve to Mike for, for the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And that was the first time I got introduced to them. And then we actually, after that, they wanted to play some points. So then, you know, their coach and he played on one side with Mike and then I played with Bob and then we kind of hit it off. Like Bob and I actually, at that time, Bob had his first kid. And then I was talking about my first kid and oh, cool. we kind of hit it off. We got, we became friends and, you know, we exchanged numbers, which was cool. And uh, so we still keep in touch and stuff. And, so, but the cool thing with them was that the doubles dynamic is a little bit different because they can train with each other, right? Um, but when they want to play points, they have to have two other guys. But they uh, then we played points after that. There's actually a clip on YouTube, um, which was posted up by someone else. I'll actually, I'll, I'll put it up and yeah. put a little clip up uh, of that. And we were playing some points with the Bryans, which is amazing. I mean, those guys are the most successful doubles team of all time. 
gentlemen's really nice guys, easy to deal with too, and unbelievable hands, unbelievable, again, work ethic. They were out in terms of doubles. I remember their work ethic. And then over the years, they would, every year they would call me out. So every year uh, there was, there was a time too, where I was literally there just for them. Like, you know, they were like, Hey, we want Jabron. Is Jabron here this year? You want Jabron? So, so for a bunch of years, they, I was kind of there kind of, and then I'd be, you know, sitting in their box and mm-hmm. kind of cheering them on. They won a bunch of titles. I remember in Toronto and in Montreal and, and, you know, invite, they invited me to come up to Montreal. Cause usually I just do it in Toronto and in, in terms of the hitting, hitting. And then when I go to Montreal, it's more so because a player will invite me right there, whether it be a Sam Qureshi who played a couple of years ago there or Bob, um, Bob Bryan. And, uh, you know, I'll get my little pass and then I'll just kind of, chill but also watch matches and, and then be on their on their side and support them and, and then warm them up and so but it's unbelievable the work ethic they put into it even as doubles players you know the same work ethic and they're out there I remember eight o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock almost getting done at eight so you can imagine they're out there before anybody else getting their workout in getting their training practice in and then being off the court by 8 a.m um they're not even playing in the next few days right because the doubles and and these most of these tournaments will start like wednesday thursday sometimes right because they're smaller draws but yeah work ethic again their discipline and their work ethic is just unbelievable to learn from uh whether it be dynamic warm-ups before uh before their warm-up for practice right um they got they have to do it they they understand that they could potentially get injured and, and the benefits that it provides and gets them loosened up to hit their first balls on court and uh afterwards as well right after their matches and this goes for any player they're on the bike you know they're flushing out the legs getting the lactic acid out also they're they're stretching for a good you know 30 minutes to 40 minutes and then they're on the you know after they shower they go down to get massage so it's literally their whole day is put into what they into their grind and their their what they do and every day so it's it's pretty pretty amazing to watch that and learn from it so yeah, it's great to hear. I mean, they they definitely are super nice. Uh, remember one year at the City Open, I did a quick post match interview with them, and predictably, I uh, mixed them up, but they were cool about it. Uh, I think Bob laughed, and then I I realized immediately that I <laughs> screwed that up. So, but it was they're they're really cool guys. One last question about practicing and playing with these amazing players. Just curious, uh, as far as like. Which which one or two players did you find with like the most relaxed and chill and like super easy going? And then which were which one or two were super intense? So the cool thing was too is that I was able to hit with Nadal um as well and I got that opportunity so I could send Nadal Fed and Djokovic were under the belt, which was great. Same. And uh, you know, he brings another he's unbelievably humble, you know, you know, all those guys are really, really humble, nice guys. To deal with or asking about you know I mean Federer and, and Nadal and Jokers, they're asking about where you train and what what you do and and I, that 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 really made things special because you know it's like really they could they could not even care but they're actually asking about where you're from what you do and you know how things are going and so they make you feel at ease and and they and then you realize after doing it a few years in the first year I was like shaking in my boots. And then the, you know, the next couple of years, it was, it was a lot more at ease because you get used to it, but they make you feel that way. Right. So they make you feel at ease and, um, really humble guys. Fetter is just on another level of genuine, humble, very nice. Go I remember a friend of mine was with me once and he was asking for an autograph and, and he was almost doing like an interview right before. And he's like, but I will definitely, I'll sign your, you know, your hat or whatever. 
after I'm done. And he actually came over after and literally like, you wouldn't even have to go to him. You were sitting on a table and he came over and he just surprised us. He's like, I'll, I'll sign your hat now. And how's things going and chatting with us. And it was just unbelievable, right? You're like thinking, whoa, like better, it's better, right? And then Nadal too, very nice going through, you know, the player's lounge, always saying hello to everybody, saying hello to, you know, when I was on court with him too, his English at that time wasn't you know, very, very fluent, but, but he was still making me feel comfortable. How are you? How's everything? Very nice, very genuine. But once it got to practice mode, like he is, he is definitely the most intense guy. You can Mm -hmm. see he just takes his, he's a little more specific with bringing that same intensity in practice, even more so in the practice court than all in matches. And we think he's, he's really, really, he's really intense in matches, but uh, he's actually even more intense in practice. So he hits through the ball a lot in practice. And we've seen that, whether it be on YouTube and stuff, but his ball definitely is the heaviest to deal with. Again, he gave me easy pace in the beginning. And then once he started loosening up in 15, 20 minutes, his ball was, if I didn't take it early, like forget it, it's it's, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's up here, it's above the shoulder and you can't handle the, you can't handle the, the spin and the pace. It's too much. Right. So he'll go three, four balls up the middle and then he'll just pop one down into the open court, right? Cross quarter down the line. Um, to kind of work on the natural pace that he would be, he'd be using in a match. But he was definitely the most intense. But again, very humble, very genuine. Uh, Djokovic was very nice as well, asking about. I've hit with him a couple times. His last time I hit with him too. He just recently had his second kid too. The very first time I hit with him, actually, I just posted up on my Instagram uh, the pi- a picture, which was cool. The very first time I hit with him was on center court. And we were walking on court and he actually was just uh, winning. He just got done winning Wimbledon that year too. And, and he had his first child and I just had my first child as well. And, and we were walking on court and he's like, I was like, congrats for winning Wimbledon. And I heard your dad now too. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's an amazing experience. And, and then we started sharing a little bit of like, yeah, I'm a dad too. And this and that, which was cool. And, and then next thing you know, Federer is walking off the court. He was just uh, finishing his uh, match with Ben, uh, sorry, his practice match and, and practice with uh, Benoit Pair. So he was coming off. I got to say hello to Fed again, and and we met up. And 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 then the funny thing is, and the very cool thing is, is that these guys see thousands, if not millions, of people when they travel the globe, right? Whether it be players, but fans, this that, you know, like they see everybody, right? Uh, but he still remembered my name, and I was like, whoa, like because I hadn't seen him since two thousand seven, I think, at that time, in terms of meeting him. And he was like, hey, Jabron, how you doing? I was like, oh, man, <laughs> he still remembers Jabron. Like, I'm a nobody, right? So, um, but anyway, so that was really cool. And so, I mean, and that shows you how alert they are mentally. That shows you how, how much they, these guys are not only, not only intelligent and smart, but they, you know, that's fast, fast thinking on court, too. That tells you how they, they can make last-minute decisions uh, in a match and, and win matches for how many years now, right? So that makes them great as well. Uh, but yeah, the genuine feeling that I got from most players. Honestly, the guys are all, all the guys are really nice. I didn't get any, any, you know, I've hit with Fognini. You hear, you hear stories that Fognini can be a little bit tough to deal with on court. Um, but even Fognini was nice, you know, he's a nice guy on court and he, he hits a great ball as well. And again, all the experiences were unbelievable, but, but I would definitely say Nadal was the most intense in terms of what he brings to the court and in, in, in his intensity and ball striking, unbelievable, heavy, heavy balls. Better hits a big ball too, when he wants to. But uh, he's more relaxed. He's more chilled. Like he'll just kind of take it easy in practice and then turn it on when he wants to and then just just turn it on in a match whenever he wants with a flip of a. But again, they've guys that are watching these guys have been doing it for so long that a guy like Fed can 
can actually turn it off in practice and then be able to turn it on to match because they've put in the grind and it's, they've suffered from every many, many years, right? So they're able to do that. That doesn't mean we copy that. You still got to be disciplined and be able to be be somewhat focused on what you're trying to do instead of, you know, you have some juniors be like, hey, you know what, I'm copying Fetter, you know, I want to be relaxed like him too, but we can't be like them until we actually get to that, hopefully get to that level. We want to, we want, we all aspire to get to that level. 100% Gibran. Very cool. Uh, again, amazing insights. And, you know, when I was scanning your Instagram, I saw a, a really nice post about uh, you playing uh, against uh, Denis Shapovalov. Uh, probably pronounced that wrong. But uh, and I was wondering if you, I don't know how much you want to speak about that experience. Um, I thought that was really nice. Yeah, no, I think that match, even though it was an exhibition match, we held it at the Granite Club. Um, it was uh, it was it was a match I'll never forget because even though it was for fun, I actually lost my father the week before that match, and you know he was battling cancer, and this is exactly why I had to come back and cut my you know college career short too, is that he was dealing with some health issues at that time, and I had to kind of take the priority to um, to take the reins in terms of financial stability for the house and take care of my parents and take care of also a wife and, and a young child. So I had a lot of stuff on my shoulders to take care of. And that's why, but then I also had this goal of, of being a pro, right? Like I wanted to be a pro and, uh, and that was my goal. So that match was, was very special because the, the months leading up to that time were tough. And my father had passed away the, literally the week before they had planned to do this exhibition match, but about a year before. So I'd already confirmed to say yes. And, and then, uh, you know, I got a call like literally the week of uh, after my dad had passed and, you know, my boss, Tim, was like, hey, you know, you're going to be able to do this. Uh, we could still call it off, you know, get someone else. And I was like, you know what? My dad would have been proud because I showed him pictures, you know, I'm going to play with Shapovalov. And, you know, at that time, uh, so I ended up doing it. So it was great, even though, you know, I just went through a tough time uh, with losing my father and, you know, people guests coming over to pay respects and stuff. I had to get out and almost it was my getaway right from from the tough uh experience that i had to deal with but that I, you know i did it and 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 the and the, the, the crazy thing about it and i i actually tell my my students and my the people i coach especially competitors with what i went through that match because because i had gone through such an extreme experience with losing my father i went on court almost totally free of any expectations like there were members asking me like jabron have you been training for this match and you know, oh my goodness, like, you know, this guy's going to, you know, I even had some guys come up to me, like, this guy's going to destroy you. Why are you even doing this? My, it's funny, my brother-in-law is like, dude, don't go out there. You're going to get destroyed. You're, you're going to make a, you're going to make a fool of yourself. Um, but I wanted to get out there just because, again, I knew Dennis, number one, uh, from that, the Players Edge Academy in Toronto at that time, Dennis's mother was actually a colleague of mine. So we were all coaching at the same academy. And and little Dennis at like eight, nine, 10 years old would be hanging around the courts all day. And his mom would sometimes ask me to hit with him. So I knew Dennis when he was this tall. And, and so I kind of had this like, and he looked up to me at that time because I was like this pro tennis player, right? Uh, so, uh, so I would hit with him. And so we had this kind of comfort with each other. So I wanted to get out anyways, in general, just to get out and, and see something different because the last few months before that were tough. But uh, during the match, I, my bosses are there. There's a there's a couple hundred members there that were watching because it was during a December break time. And, um, you know, I went in there and, 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 and just totally was, I had blinders on. I just enjoyed the moment. I, uh, we did an eight game pro set, right? Cause it wasn't a two out of three. We didn't have too much time to do it, but we did an eight game pro set. 
And I could have in that, you know, when I look back at it, I was in a state of mind um, where I could definitely say that I was so in the moment that I almost didn't even know what the score was. Like at one point until like the umpires calling the score and then, you know, you come back to, to life. But I was kind of numbed from, from like the months before and then the week yeah. got leading up and, and, but I was playing so free and I was so, so I was playing so loose that because I had no expectations of winning and losing and I didn't care what my boss thought, I didn't care what the members thought if I was going to win or lose. I didn't care what anybody thought because I had gone through something that was obviously really tough and and this was like my release. So I was just out there playing tennis with, mm -hmm. and that match specifically on a competitive level, I would definitely speak to that really left a mark in terms of not only learning experience, but something that I'll never forget uh, because I ended up winning the match and, and the way it, and leading up now coming up soon, I'll, I'll post that somebody uh, surprisingly had recorded that last clip because what happened was Nice. We ended up getting into a tiebreaker. He was up. He was leading. He was up like 6-4. Then it was like 8-6. Wow. Uh, and then I came back and then I tied it up. And 8-all, we played a tiebreaker. And we played a 10-point breaker. And there's a little clip of someone recording the match from like me being up, I think, 5-2. Anyways, like I was up 5-2 in the breaker, long story short. And I had blinders on up until that point. At 5-2, and this is what I tell my students all the time, right? At 5-2, leading in that match, what started coming into my mind was, oh, my God, I'm about to beat this guy. Mm. And, oh, my goodness, what is, what is my boss going to say? Or what is he going to think? Am I supposed to be beating this guy? What, is the member, what are the members going to say? What, so all these demons started coming back into my mind. Yeah. Whereas before, I was just totally like I had this self-belief in myself that everything is going to be all right. Just dealt with this tough time with losing my father and everything's fine. I had this like contentment that I was good. Like I had this belief in that match that I was just fine. Just do, just do whatever you learned how to do for so many years, go out there and do it. So those things started creeping into my mind. I was up five, two at that time and we're playing a 10 point breaker. Okay. I lose, I went down six, five from that point. I lose, I don't know how many points there. I mean, my mind's done now, but I, I, I lost five point, or six points in a row or something like that and down six five and then i finally i was like dude let it go and then it's, it came to me again and i said who cares like i almost had this in the whole match i almost had this who cares mentality but then at that who cares mentality wasn't like i'm not tanking yeah. it was almost this state of mind that i i'm playing my game i'm competing but i had zero expectations of winning or losing in the mental state or you know the psychological state i was in I could have been, you know, in that state of like how guys say you're you're in peak performance stage, like you're just totally in the zone, right? I was in the zone um, of playing and competing because I didn't really I didn't really care about if I was going to win or lose, but I was just there for the moment, every point. That's why, like at one point, I didn't even know what the score was until like the umpire would call the score out. So and it ended up getting back and forth. It was six all, then seven six, and seven all. Then I went down match point at like uh, what's called um, at uh, nine eight. And he has a match point. Then it went back. Then I tied it. Then I'm up match point. Then he saves a match point. They ended up ended up winning the match. I think it was like thirteen to eleven or something like that. And again, it was just it was you know he he was like about seventeen or eighteen at that time, and he just won junior Wimbledon and all that stuff. But to me, 
he was just that little dentist that I that I knew when you know he was trying to ask me for hits. So that obviously gave me a comfort level too because I knew him from and in the middle of the match, like or right before actually we just warmed up and and you know he's a nice guy, genuine guy too. Uh, his buddy actually because I'd posted up on Facebook or something that my dad passed away or something. So he actually you know he he paid respects and he gave me a big hug and he's like, man, I really have respect for you. Mm-hmm. Dennis gave me a hug and he's like, for you to even come out and do this after losing your dad. So. Uh, he had a lot of respect uh, for me to come out and, and play, but you know, even after the match, I was you know emotional as well a bit because you know I just I wasn't expected to win the match at all. But that was even though it meant nothing, but to me it was a big big experience. Um, and then also you know the members had a little more. Oh, Jabron can actually play tennis, and I, surprised, <laughs> I probably surprised my bosses too because I bet you if they were betting for a player, you know, majority of the people in that stadium, even though were rooting for Jabron to do well, uh, they they had no clue that Jabron was going to be able to beat a, a caliber player like that. And then funny thing was a year later, even two years later, he ended up beating Nadal at the Rogers cup. And then I had members <laughs> calling me and being like, Oh my goodness, he just beat Nadal. That means you beat Nadal. And I'm like, yeah, right, that, that means I've even been Nadal, but, but that was a really cool experience. You know, again, that, that memory will, will be, will be there for a lifetime. And that experience that I share with some of the competitors on court, because if I look back and even that future is kind of, match that I can that I shared with you guys just now in terms of being in the lead and then losing I really thought that I remember that my mental I look back now my mental state was I had so much like pressure and expectation to win a match because I had to win that match to stay Mm -hmm. in the rankings and I put so much pressure on myself that I forgot to compete uh, with, an, with almost letting go, but because, but that shows you how much pressure there is on some of these players. And then I'm sure the top level players have done it so much that whether it's sponsorship pressure, whether it be being able to sustain a certain ranking, you have a lot of pressure to deal with. Right. So when I played that match in the futures that I lost, you know, being up a set and down and then up five, two in the second and losing in the third, I've definitely put way more pressure on myself to like, I have to do this. I have to win. And then I did, I wasn't able to compete to my full potential. But then when I almost felt that numbness slash no expectations and just play your game and don't worry about the expectations in the Dennis match, even though it didn't mean anything, but I ended up winning that match, which was totally unexpected, right? So that was a huge learning experience for me and for other players. I hope that helps them when they hear this story because... Sometimes we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We're like, I have to do this. And like, there's no, there, like, whether it be parent pressure, whether it be just like keeping a ranking or whatever it be, I uh, can definitely relate to being on both sides of it now in terms of uh, pressure and non-pressure, but having less expectations and going out there. And I tell my, you know, it's less, it's tough to do when you're in competitive mode, but going out there at the end of the day, look, it's a game, it's, it's tennis and, you want to enjoy being a competitor and you want to enjoy the, 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 the thrill of competition and being able to just being out there and look, being healthy now with these tough circumstances around us with COVID. I hope that this downtime has made people realize that, you know, that health is number one and these things that we take for granted like health and, and uh, the people that we love around us. And, you know, our loved ones and our friends and our families are priority and, and, and first. And tennis is still just a game that we love to do and love to play. But, uh, you know, if we just get out there and have fun more, it'll, it'll definitely uh, make us play better tennis. 100%. I'm really happy that you uh, compared and contrasted, you know, the match with Chapo uh, versus 
that last match were able to possibly get a, an ATP point to retain your ranking because it really shows how when we when we think about our extraneous factors that it, you know we pretty much can't control, then that's really really going to have a negative effect on our games versus just focusing on what we can control, which is just our execution and strategy and things like that. So a uh, really great lesson for everybody who's listening. I uh, appreciate that. And so obviously, you know, want to touch upon uh, some of your, your great coaching that you're doing at the Granite Club uh, with uh, my buddy Irfan, who uh, I was actually supposed to come up to Toronto for his, uh, his wedding this year, but uh, obviously that had to be. Yeah, I got postponed, unfortunately. Well, hopefully yeah. we'll get to meet up because of that when we, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to be uh, next year now, but, you know, it'll give us an excuse to meet up as well. So that's that's great. But, yeah, no, uh, I'm really enjoying the um, the experience now with coaching and trying to get more into, you know, we look at, again, we look at this COVID time, we look at the downtime, you know, people can bring it into the negative or you can, I like to take things into the positive. And exactly. there's a lot of positives that came out of this time because whether it be more family time or downtime, but specifically in my, in my, uh, coaching career now, I've been able to, I wouldn't have got into this whole Instagram thing, right? Like I just recently started this a few months ago and I got inspired by, Guys like you and another guy, uh, shout out to, you know, Ryan Reedy, who you probably know as well, who does two minute tennis. And, you know, he did a couple of Zoom classes on um, uh, video analysis. And I always thought his his stuff was really cool. His content was cool, too. So I reached out to him and I did one of his Zoom classes and and I learned how to do some some technical analysis, which I never really got in depth with. And uh, I had some downtime. And because of that downtime it inspired me to start getting in more to get into that. And I always wanted to do this because now I had more time to do it. I was able to now start building up a little bit of uh, content on Instagram and I'm trying to build that up. And, uh, you know, you guys can follow me on J force tennis if you guys want on Instagram and uh, YouTube is the same thing. J force tennis. And yeah, so it's, you know, it's getting, getting out there and just trying to put a little bit of content out every day, whether it's video of helping someone with their, simple, simple tip on your forehand or a simple tip on, you know, I did one the other day on, you know, how to serve in the sun. You know, it's always a tough one where, you know, people try to avoid hitting in the sun and, you know, this is how you hit in the sun or whatever. So uh, small little tips that will help everybody and not just competitive tennis players, but, you know, any, any beginner player, any player that loves to play tennis, I think the, 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 the goal is to try to keep it simple. So it kind of hits everybody versus just a specific genre of player. But yeah, no, it's been an amazing experience. I've been at the Granite Club for eight years now. And uh, it started off tough because, you know, I had to, I was going from performance, from teaching Braden and those high performance players, and then all of a sudden settling down and then realizing that my tennis career is over now because I have a child now and I have to support the family a little more seriously now. And so I, I started doing more uh, certifications. So I did Tennis Canada certifications here and and I got myself into that. And um and then start getting more into coaching. But yeah, no, I started off doing a little more, you know, red ball stuff. And, and it was frustrating in the beginning. I wasn't motivated enough to do that because I'm coming from hitting balls with like yeah. former pros, this, that. And then it was a huge shock. And, and, and it is a private club. So it was a big culture shock to me too, in terms of it was a different dynamic of player, right? So a little more club level player versus performance player. So that huge, huge difference was a big shock to me initially. And I was a bit demotivated. I was a bit not motivated initially because, you know, I felt like I was doing a little more babysitting more so than actually being able to teach just to get your feet feet wet. And But it was good. Again, I look back at that and I look at 
those times, uh, those tough times to, to grow as a tennis coach. And now being able to, I've been there for eight years, uh, develop up a clientele and build up my uh, coaching ability to now I am the senior, I'm the head of senior development at the club. So uh, my boss, uh, Gary Caron uh, and Tim Fisher, they, uh, they thought it was a good idea to get me uh, focused more on senior development, senior competitive play. And the focus usually at most clubs is get the juniors going, get the, so we have a decent junior program uh, that's players that are playing competitive, you know, locally, provincially and nationally players. But the focus was to get, there's a huge demographic of senior adult players that had a lot of time that could focus on competitive play, whether it be, you know, senior ITFs. I'm a senior, by the way, I'm 35 <laughs> and over. Uh, but, I just uh, became a senior too. <laughs> hey man, there we go. You know, uh, usually the funny thing is like senior development at first, you know, there's like some people are like senior development. That sounds like, you know, you're walking around with a cane, but no, it's 35, <laughs> 35s and over. And there's a new world out there with, with competitive play within mm-hmm. 35, it's five year increments of 35, yeah. 40, 45, all the way up to like, it goes all the way up to the top, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. to like almost 80, 85s. But yeah. anyways, there's a huge demographic of player, you know, with juniors, it's great. You know, we want to develop them and keep developing them but the you know a neat thing about this is that the seniors aren't going anywhere like it just it just doesn't stop because you know at 18 a, a junior could possibly go into university and then he's then he's got more things to look forward to whereas in this cool dynamic it's uh you know you get to see a broad range of players and ages but it's ranging from 35 to 100 years old right so there's no end to it in terms of development which is neat but also uh with the club culture it's more internal leagues and house leagues that, that the players were used to. But now I'm trying to slowly integrate, Hey guys, there's tournaments outside the club. Like there's tournaments that you could play ITF international sanctioned events that are in Toronto or there are, that, that you can travel to the U S to go play and get your ranking up. And that, ha- that, you know, people have a lot of time to, to focus on that, uh, especially if their kids at, at that age, you know, group, uh, especially in the fifties and the fifty fives, you know, their their kids are either in university or they're independent kids, and so they do have some extra time. Then they're passionate about tennis, so this is a great time to get them involved and get them understanding the full picture and and being able with my experience and the background that I've learned with you know all these pros and and taking that information and being able to help them with doing I'm, i make sure with this you know now i had 16 players in, in a group that i was running this week uh with men and women ranging from age 40 to 65 70 year olds even right 75 plus um and that we need to do a proper dynamic warm-up like no, a lot of them they're like we've never done this before so getting them introduced to why do we have to do this at first you, you know it's like why do we need to do this but then you tell them like hey you know it's injury preventative it's it's it, it gets you you know properly warmed up your body's in gear to hit the first ball and you're ready to go versus begin being coming in cold hitting and then taking you an hour to really actually getting loosened up in the in in your practice and getting quality quality hits in so you know, just getting them introduced to that. And also now slowly, I'm going to start getting them introduced to off-court training. So they need to understand that they need to work on their strength and conditioning if they want to come become competitive players, but also realizing that it's really going to help them with their injury pre- prevention, right? And then teaching them post stretches. And I love your stuff, you know, that you're putting out there as well with the dynamic warmups and the and the uh, the stretches and the core workouts and stuff that you're showing as well. And that's all needed for every player, right? Whether it's a junior or whether it's a senior. but getting them molded into especially with seniors you know the you know i'm 35 though actually 36 now and 
you know, my back, my lower back in the morning is sore too. So I, I get, I get like getting old, what we're getting old means. Right. So it's more so important for us as senior players to be doing it than, uh, than, than juniors need to do it obviously too. But you know, we, we, we need to do it even more because we can get injured much quicker, right. If we do not do those things. So just getting them going and developing a little more of a competitive nature kind of theme around the club, which is nice and a little more of a competitive program structured around that, getting players playing and uh, which was great. Like this before COVID January, 2020, there was two events, ITF events here in Toronto where uh, you know, the first tournament we had about 11 players playing during holiday season. And, and then the second tournament in January and mid January after the holiday season, I had 18 players play out of the 18, there was 15 players, honestly, that had never played a tournament in their life. They didn't even know what a tournament was and got them going and got them actually believing the fact that they can get out and experience something special. And everybody had positive feedback. Some of them lost, but you know what? I was there watching them in their matches and they really felt that support, but also them realizing that there's other players outside of the scope of the bubble of just the Granite Club and, and meeting them, meeting new players, meeting seeing how others warm up or, you know, players that are experienced that how do they win matches and watching the tactics and learning, but also learning about themselves and when they did take a loss or whether they did they'd take a win, you know, talking to them about their tactics and what worked, what didn't work in the match. Also getting them to come back with some real, I feel like match play is really, really important to get out. It's like going to school and doing all this hard work and then not being tested, right? Not being yeah. quizzed. So them being able to play matches and, you know, obviously some players are hesitant. They don't want to get out there, whether it be fear of loss or fear of whatever it be, fear of failure. I think I really had to inspire them to get out and, and I actually played, I I wasn't ready to play. I I ended up playing at the doubles event in the 35s. We lost in the finals to Henry Choi and his partner who Henry Choi actually is uh, number one in the men's 35s in the world singles player. He's really a player. We played opens together and he played, I don't know where he played D1 tennis as well, but he's playing, he's really focusing on, uh, he's a head pro out in Vancouver somewhere. And um, he, he's, he's had some time to actually go out there. And so it actually got me inspired to kind of get back into competitive mode, which feeds into, well, I had a bunch of members come out and watch me in the finals, right? So we had, we created a nice little con- uh, a community of tennis players within even our club as a, as a, as a granite team that was really able to support each other, but also, you know, um, see that we can we can enjoy this competitive natured uh events outside of the club so that's what i'm trying to build within the club and hopefully uh keeps growing so that's the goal awesome man great to hear that <clears throat> i feel like you and earth should get out there and play some dubs too yeah and i'm trying to motivate earth uh to get out there and and and, and do it as well eventually i'm sure he's got more more uh he's got bigger things on his mind with getting married soon and stuff but yeah no he's i got him helping with my with the program and he's been helping me since the fall uh before covid with this program too and uh he's got you know playing background so i I wanted to bring on some some guys that had some some playing ability uh and experience from the from the past to to be able to give feedback to to the players and what what uh what it really means to to be a competitor right so and just sharing that with the, with the members, I think they've really, really loved it. And so far, and you know, the, the goal is to, to keep uh, moving forward with it. So, yeah. Awesome, man. So as far as, uh, things you've seen, uh, probably the last question substance substantively is it, with your members, like, is there one or two particular things that you've seen 
in their games, it's like a running theme that you've identified that you you find yourself like kind of over and over telling people like, oh, you need to change this or adjust this and so forth. Well, it's um, it's an interesting uh, thing at the moment. I've made it very inclusive. So in terms of level and it, you know the 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 rating system, you'll have players ranging from three point to like four point five, right? And then you allot them on certain courts depending on ability but i've made it in a way where it's uh i'm trying to get an idea because it's just new now i'm trying to get to see who really is aspiring to to work and to to suffer a little bit and and feel uncomfortable and be able to get better and everybody wants to get better but this theme in terms of being a competitor whether it be social play these guys want to beat their buddies and monday night doubles or whatever but right now it's such an open thing in terms of really getting an idea of who wants to play and be able to play. Uh, we find that we see, you know, it goes back to basics. You know, a lot of these guys love to play doubles club level. Um, tennis is, they really love their doubles and the singles. We're trying to bring in themes of singles as well. We'll do a little bit of a, uh, a theme structured around uh, singles play. And then we'll do doubles to end off the day with our two hour program or whatever. So we get an understanding because there's some players that would love to play singles in their in their tournaments, which we had uh, do, right? So, but a lot of the players love playing doubles, but it's the basic things, right? Where to stand. We don't get too much time specifically to work on grips or technique and this and that, but it's it's more based around being alert, being being active, you know, keeping in intensity up, keeping quality up, uh, pre- preparation, setting up quickly. Uh, why is depth so important? Why is positioning here so important? those things are, 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 we're trying to keep it as simple as possible initially. And then you, you start getting deeper into, into the understanding of, we even did some poaching stuff leading up to before COVID, we did a bunch of poaches, you know, how to deal, how to, where to stand and what to do in a poach, how to fake, how to, how to stay, how to use signals. And a lot of people didn't understand signals at that time. So those kind of things and, and just being, making them more aware. And, and again, I think more so important, importantly is building a community of tennis players within the club. Uh, so they actually love coming out and being a part of a group that is wanting to do the same thing and competing and, and, and working, working hard to get better. Appreciate that. So then you mentioned a couple of places where people could, could, uh, reach you, but I mean, yeah, you can mention like any others or just mention them again, as far as like where people can connect with you and find your instruction and, and posts and all that. Yeah, so I started the uh, Instagram stuff, and you guys can follow me on uh, JForce uh, at JForce Tennis for the Instagram. And I haven't really done too much on the YouTube page yet, which I'm going to start uploading. I might upload that. Watch out, guys! I'm uh, I'm going to probably upload that Shapovalov experience nice. in that tiebreaker. Uh, I think that'll be a cool experience for guys to uh, for for players and people to to see. And uh, also after this, listening to the story, I haven't really shared this with that many people in depth, but I think this will be cool for uh, for the ones to actually go and see that. And I'll put that up on my YouTube page too, which is JForce Tennis as well. So you guys can follow me there. Sweet. Awesome. Awesome, Jabron. So before I let you go, I ask everybody on the podcast this question, which, you know, you've given us a lot of great tips, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I would definitely go back to the beginning. Like I really, I think uh, overall, it's very important to understand what you do well and realize what you do well early and then be able to mold your game around that, right? So whether I'm a 
I, lo I love big forehands. You know, I want to I want to see more forehands, right? Obviously, the backhand you're going to develop as you go, but you want to structure your game around a certain way of playing. And I feel that that can that can be kind of used for every player, whether you're a beginner, whether you're you're a competitive player. Learn what you do well and what you can't do, and and base your game around doing those things more so often. The better things more often, like your weapons, and using the the things that you do well more often than than you don't do well. Like if I don't have a good backhand, that doesn't mean I don't hit a backhand, but guess what? I'm going to favor my forehand. You get around it as much as you can, right? You use your footwork and then you develop your, your ability to use your footwork to get around, whether it be, you know, I need to spend a little more time in the gym to get quicker, to get around a ball so I can use my strength more or whether, you know, I know I have a big serve. I'm going to work on getting, getting a basket and putting in 15, 20, half an hour every day to develop my serve because I know I'm going to get a lot of free points out of it. Um, but the serve and the return in general, you know, like you said, you talked to Craig and, you know, we're watching Craig a lot as well as coaches and tennis players. He's done a lot. And first four shots, you can see how important those first four shots are. But also we do tend to work a lot on ground strokes and volleys and other things and technique. But we tend to forget as, as coaches and as players that we really need to focus on our serve plus one shots and a return plus one so the serve and the return is just critical i mean that's where the the matches are starting and you know the point starts from the serve and the return so you know just focusing more on that but i really believe that you should try to get some guidance and and start understanding what you are who are you on the court what do you do well and and mold your game game around your strengths like that's how i think you're going to build more confidence and as you go, your technique's going to get better and better, right? You know, Federer and Nadal and those guys, their techniques, they're still, they're still working on stuff, right? They're still getting better in technique. I believe technique gets better and better as you go and as you develop and as you get stronger. But this and that, this, that the confidence comes from you believing what you do well and it, it builds your identity. And I think a player identity is very, very important uh, from the get-go. So the earlier you find out what you like to do, focus on that and then, plug away and just build build around it build your base from that so that's what i would say to to all the players out there and coaches too hopefully love it appreciate that yeah it's just use your money maker it's like well, you're really good at carpentry and that's your career and that's your strength and you do it a lot so awesome jabron i appreciate you coming on to the podcast and uh, a lot of great stuff a lot of great experiences that you've uh gone through with us so i appreciate you coming on this was definitely a you know, long episode, but it was uh, filled with a lot of great stuff in there. So thanks again. And um, yeah, looking forward to meeting you uh, at least by next year and uh, well, in person, of course, and uh, wishing you the best. Thanks so much for having me and uh, keep up the amazing work. You know, your stuff is inspiring as well. Your website and all the stuff that you're doing too with these with the podcasts and uh, all your talks. And I can't believe it's almost, you know, <laughs> two hours here. But, uh, you know, again, sharing these stories with you guys was. Uh, it was a pleasure, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Anytime, Jabron. Take care, man. Have a good one. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Jabron, and a uh, big thanks to him for coming on to the show and letting us know about his really awesome experiences with the best players in the world, uh, as well as his own experiences in getting through tough times, as well as some really great tips for us to improve our tennis games. And I really would appreciate it if you found value in this episode and learned something from it and slash or enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast and also leave a review uh, if you are so inclined. And 
Subscribing would be great as it would uh, immediately provide you with the episode straight into the, your uh, device of choice that you use to listen to it as soon as I hit the publish button. So that's pretty convenient. And uh, of course, reviews just help me learn how I can improve the show and what I'm doing, what I'm doing right and uh, what I maybe, maybe could do better. So that is always helpful. And of course, it just really helps the show uh, become more visible by virtue of climbing up the rankings and using the uh, wacky ranking system, however Apple Podcasts and other apps do it. But thanks a lot either way. And I also want to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. This quote is by Tim Ferriss, who is a great author and entrepreneur, and I've uh, read his books and love his podcast, uh, which you should all check out. And Tim says, do not overestimate the competition and underestimate yourself. You are better than you think. And that is very true. A lot of us really don't realize uh, the talent and potential and skills that we really have. And so that's something that you really want to sit down and objectively evaluate and even ask other people, hey, what are my strengths? And, uh, and as Gibran said, uh, and as I harp on as well, you really want to make sure to concentrate on your strengths and use those as much as possible. And especially with tennis, use those strengths as much as possible against your opponent's weaknesses. So try to set up the point to do that and you're going to be the most successful if you follow this approach. Well, thanks a lot for listening and hopefully learning. And uh, again, love to hear your feedback on this episode and others. So you can catch all the episodes at tennisfiles.com slash podcast. And of course, in the podcast app, just subscribe and you'll get them all. All right, this is Maribana Ranshad. Thanks so much for listening and see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.